This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12 as we resume our series of studies in the book of Exodus. We step to chapter 20, uh, looking today at Exodus 12, verses 14 through 28. You recall that uh, Egypt is suffering from the plagues that the Lord has sent, and we are looking at passages that are preparing for the tenth and final plague that the Lord will send on Egypt, the death of the firstborn of each household. And we saw a couple of weeks ago how the Lord gave instructions to Moses for the celebration of the Passover, the taking of a lamb, the slaughtering of the lamb, uh, putting of the blood of the lamb over the uh, doorpost uh, of, of the home, and that the Lord would then protect his people who were so covered by the blood of the lamb. Now, today's passage continues to talk about the Passover, but does so specifically from the standpoint of the Passover meal and more broadly the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a way to look back on and remember the mighty saving work of God. And so we pick up with Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of God. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread." Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians 
And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that as we study the scriptures this morning, that they would indeed be to us your word, which is able to make us wise for salvation. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Each one of us has our own individual memories. We remember people we've met. We remember places that we have been. We remember things we've done. We remember books that we have read. We remember, for example, movies that we have seen. And these memories, the things that we remember, are in many ways unique to each one of us. There may be memories that overlap, for example, with a husband or a wife, activities that you did together, uh, books you may have read together. But even then, the particulars that you might remember may vary. Our, our, our memories tend to be very individual, very unique things. Now, while individuals have memories, societies or cultures have collective memories as well. We remember things together. In fact, we recently did this. We had uh, earlier, a couple of weeks ago, a uh, commemoration, a remembering of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And we do that to keep those things in mind as a culture. Uh, We remember those things together, things like that. In fact, we exhort one another to remember those things. Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember the Maine. Does anyone remember the Maine? Probably many people don't. Maine, of course, was an American battleship in Havana Harbor that uh, mysteriously blew up and sank. And uh, there are various theories for that. Some say that uh, the the, the Spanish deliberately sank it. Some say it struck a mine. Some say uh, powder kegs exploded within the ship in an accident. And some even said the Americans blew it up and sank it themselves just to get the United States into war with Spain. Yes, those kinds of theories were around even then, 1898. Uh, but, but the rallying cry was, remember the Maine, or even before that, remember the Alamo. That was back in the 1830s, uh, but we tend to remember that even more than we remember the Maine. But we, not only do we exhort one another to remember these things that are shared in our memory collectively, but we set up monuments to those things to remember those things, to help us remember. And we take our children and we show them the monument and we say, this is, this is what happened here. This is what happened long ago. And we explain its significance to them. Now, what is true for us individually, what is true for us collectively as a society, 
is certainly also true for us individually and collectively as believers. What is true for us as Christians and together as the church. God tells us to remember what he has done for us in our salvation. And that's what this passage that we've read is about. It's about remembering. Now, I said that earlier the Lord explained to Moses the Passover, and he does. The emphasis here, while it still explains it, has to do with the fact that this is something that is to continue. Not just to happen once as they get ready in that actual event to leave Egypt, but something that is to happen annually and something that is to be a way that they remember together what the Lord has done and not only remembering it together, but are able to point to it and explain it to their children. Now, again, the Lord is setting the stage for this final plague, the one that will be the last straw that broke the Egyptian camel's back and uh, caused Pharaoh to allow the people to leave, not just to allow it, but in fact, basically to drive them out. And so they have the Passover meal, which isn't to happen just once, but is to be repeated to help them remember, because God wants them to remember. God wants us to remember. God wants us to remember his great work in saving us, his people. Well, what connection does that have to do with us? Well, we'll look at it as we go along here. Specifically in this passage, there are three truths that the Lord communicates through it about this Passover meal. First of all, it is a perpetual feast. Perpetual not in the sense it's just going on all the time. Perpetual in it is to be observed each year, on and on. In fact, the language is, uh, is pretty strong there. Uh, if you'll look at verse 14, the Lord says, You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Again, verse 17, as a statute forever. And then again in verse uh, 24, You shall observe this as a statute for you and your sons forever. So this isn't just to be a one-time event. It's not just to be remembered for a few years. It's to continue on without end, without coming to a conclusion. Now, you'll notice as you read through this that there's a specific Passover meal, and then the Lord talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's there, that's part of it. And that actually becomes one of the three great Jewish feasts, along with the Feast of uh, Booths or Tabernacles. Uh, and the Feast of Weeks of Pentecost. Uh, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread was one of the great feasts that uh, later the Jews would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. Of course, we're familiar with that uh, in the Gospels uh, during the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And sometimes the scriptures put them almost interchangeably, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, Passover was that specific meal the first evening, but then the Feast of Unleavened Bread continued, as the text says, for a week. And uh, you can sort of just think of them together. And in fact, as I say, the scriptures sometimes use the terms interchangeably, although they are technically distinct. They basically do go together. The Passover meal, the feast, the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, which wasn't just a, uh, a, a minute of silence. It was a whole week to remember to reflect, to think back. But this, as it says, is to be continued forever, for one generation after another. Now, in the event, um, Israel was, was pretty unfaithful, actually, in keeping the Passover. There were renewals of it at different times in her history. 
but uh, Israel is fairly sporadic, actually, in, in consistently keeping the Passover. And yet the Lord says it's to be done forever, generation after generation. Well, what about us? Why don't we celebrate the Passover if it is a statute forever that we have to keep it as a feast? Well, we do. We do right here. Because the Christian's Lord's Supper is the ongoing New Covenant form of that Old Testament meal of the Passover. Now, preacher, why do you say that? Well, I'll say it for a number of different reasons. Not the least of which was Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper at Passover. In fact, he and his disciples, as you know, had gathered in an upper room. What were they doing there? They were celebrating Passover. Jesus says, I looked forward to this, to celebrating this, this Passover meal with you before he would die the next day on Good Friday. So they're in the context of celebrating the Passover when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. The connection is not coincidental. That as with Jesus' death and then resurrection and then his ascension, giving of the Holy Spirit, a transition is taking place from the old covenant form of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament to the new covenant form of the covenant of grace in the New Testament, where our covenant meal will no longer be the Passover as such, but a simplified version of it in the Lord's Supper. Now, there are other reasons we say that, too, not just the historical connection, we looked sometime a week or two ago at First Corinthians 5, verse 7, where Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has died. We, one reason we don't celebrate the Passover as such, as certainly as they did it here, is because Christ is our Passover lamb. In fact, those lambs, those animals that they killed in order to take the blood and sprinkle it on the doors of their homes, pointed forward to Jesus. It's Jesus is the reality uh, to which they were but signs pointing forward. Since Jesus is the substance of which they were the shadow, we no longer need to sacrifice an animal because Jesus himself is our Passover lamb. Jesus was the lamb that died there on Good Friday as the Passover lamb. His blood cleansing up so much doors, but the hearts the lives, the beings of those who trusted in him, just as those Israelites trusted in that blood to protect them from the destroying angel of the Lord. And in fact, Jesus himself sort of points to his own ministry as our exodus. Look, if you will, back at Luke chapter 9, Gospel of Luke chapter 9, Verse 31, this should be a familiar passage, the transfiguration of Jesus, where for just a brief moment his glory was revealed. His disciples see his, his radiance, much as uh, God would reveal his glory in the Old Testament. Well, that, that radiance, that, that divine being of Jesus was allowed to shine. And we read in Luke 9, verse 30, Behold, two men were talking to him. It wasn't just Jesus anymore, but there was Moses and there was Elijah. Moses, the lawgiver. Elijah, the prophet, representing the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
The word departure there is the Greek form of the word for exodus. That just as Moses, God used Moses to lead his people out in the exodus, out of their bondage, Jesus was about to accomplish a second departure, a second exodus on the cross at Jerusalem. And so as we look at it, not just Passover, the whole exodus coming out of Egypt, we recognize that that itself, that whole grand event, a historical event that took place in real time, real history, pointed forward to an even, although in appearance as lesser, in reality a greater exodus, greater departure from their bondage for the people of God, won by the Lord Jesus Christ. As we move from the Old Covenant, where they celebrated their exodus from Egypt, the new covenant, we look back in the Lord's Supper to our exodus accomplished on the cross at Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. We still celebrate the Passover meal, but now in its new covenant form. And so we do continue to keep this in the new covenant. Perpetual feast, we continue to do it. It's also very striking here how emphatically it is to be uh, used with un, done with unleavened bread. And that's the second truth. Not only is it perpetual, but it is an unleavened feast. And we see this really in verses 15 through 20, the emphasis there that uh, no leaven is to be used. In fact, they're not to have any leaven in their house, which if you've ever had the Seder, the Jewish Passover meal explained, you'll know that the tradition arose of searching through the house, trying to make sure that all Yeast, eleven, is removed from the house. Why? Why is the Lord so concerned that there not be any leaven used, either at that first Passover meal or later? Much discussed question, a number of answers have been proposed. Uh, one has to do simply with, in the original situation, the haste with which they had to leave. They didn't have time to sit around waiting for the dough to rise. And one of our family traditions is to have pizza on Saturday night. Uh, Not just any pizza, but a pizza that Barbara makes, usually a pizza that Barbara makes herself. And Saturday afternoon, either she or I will buy pizza dough at the grocery store in a plastic bag, you know, and it's it's not very big. But then we bring it home and we set it on the the island there and open the bag, kind of uh, have it open, and uh, after several hours, that little piece of dough has grown pretty big. And then Barbara takes it and rolls it out, you know, we make it into a pizza. Israel had to leave pretty quickly. They were to be dressed. They were to have their traveling clothes on, staff in hand, ready to go. And part of the whole principle of unleavened bread may have simply been pointing to the fact they didn't have time to sit around and wait for the dough to rise in order to bake it and make bread. Just to sit around for several hours or however long it might take. So that's one thought here, is just the idea of haste, that when the time came, it was it, they had to go. You got out of Egypt and sit around, you go. And then that, that element of haste to be remembered and commemorated through the unleavened bread um, in, in the generations to come as they observed it. Another thought had to be that of sin. Uh, Sometimes the thought of of leaven uh, is associated with that of sin. And there are several passages in the Bible uh, that might incline us to think that way. One is going back to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. 
where Paul is talking to a situation where the church was tolerating someone who was living in a very sinful situation. The church was tolerating it, even proud of it. Uh, and Paul says, no, you need to remove that person from the midst of you because like leaven working its way through bread, the sin of that person could begin to influence and affect other people in the church. As Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then in verse 8, he says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, it makes it sound like the leaven is, is, is evil. But is that what Paul is talking about? Is he necessarily saying leaven itself is evil? In fact, leaven is sometimes used positively in the Bible. Another negative case, Luke 12, 1, Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And leaven's a negative thing, right? Sounds negative. Well, no, sometimes they use it positively. Matthew 13, 33, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Well, if leaven was inherently sinful or represented sin, Jesus wouldn't say the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. It's like evil. No. It seems that the emphasis here in all of these cases has to do with the potential of leaven to spread, to influence the whole lump of dough, which it would do. Whether that leaven is something evil, and that evil could begin to permeate and spread, or whether the leaven was something good, like the kingdom of heaven, which begins to permeate and spread for good, not for evil. So even in these passages like uh, Luke 12, 1, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, in their case, hypocrisy is a bad thing, but like leaven, it can tend to spread to those around them. The point is not so much that leaven is sinful as it is leaven influences, leaven spreads, whether for good or for ill. And so it doesn't seem so much the idea here that leaven is necessarily sinful. Uh, and so it seems that, that it's, it's sort of a weak idea. The third talk uh, or thought about leaven it may have to do with, with a break, with discontinuity. Because the practice was when you had some dough, you preserved some of it when you made bread in order to use that dough to mix in the new dough with its leaven to allow the new dough to ferment. And so there was always that element of continuity with the dough. There was always some bit of dough that went into the new dough to allow it to ferment in leaven. And there could be here the symbolism of making a hard break. That leaven following leaven following leaven was to stop. Just as they were now making a break with their past, making a break with Egypt and beginning anew as the Lord would bring them out. Now, which is it? Personally, I tend to think it has to do with haste. They just didn't have time to sit around and wait for the bread to rise. The unleavened bread represented the haste with which they had to get out of Egypt. But all three, I think, do have something to teach us. The very haste with which they had to get out of Egypt, I think, points in a way to the urgency of the gospel. That you don't have time to presume that the Lord may give you tomorrow to decide what you are going to do with Jesus. That urgency is a part of the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that the Lord has brought this to your mind, brought this to your attention. Today's the day to be serious about leaving Egypt, following the Lord, about repenting of your sins and following Jesus. So the leaven does point, I think, to that sense of urgency in the gospel. Certainly the idea of leaven as tainting, as sin, points to the necessity of dealing with sin in our lives, separating ourselves from sin, the reality that we are a new 
creation in Christ. And certainly the idea of separation as well, uh, that we come out from Egypt, we come out from the world, we follow Jesus. Not that we don't have contact with the world, but we're no longer of the world. We no longer live like the world. So all three of those, I think, do have a lesson to teach us about the nature of following Christ, the nature of what the Lord is doing now. Well, what about the Lord's Supper? Is unleavened bread necessary in the Lord's Supper? I don't think so. I'm in good company. Calvin didn't think so. Certainly many others uh, don't think so, any more than it's absolutely necessary to use wine in the Lord's Supper. Grape juice, too, is fruit of the vine. But it is true that those are what Jesus used when he instituted the Lord's Supper, because that's what they used in the Passover, unleavened bread and wine, so that those two seem to um, maintain a, a continuity, a connection with what Jesus did in the upper room that night. But I don't think now that Unleavened bread is of the essence of the Lord's Supper, uh, but it does maintain a sense of historic continuity with how the Passover was observed. And the last thing, quickly, the Passover was an explanatory feast. It was a teaching tool, and we see this uh, in verses 21 and following, where Moses instructs the elders, uh, and they were to pass this on to the people about how, what they were to do, what the Lord had told him. And he says in verse 24, you're to do this as a statute for you and for your sons forever. When you come to the land the Lord's giving you, you're to continue to observe the Passover. And verse 26, when your children say to you, what does this mean? What's going on here? Why do we do this? It's an open door to begin to explain to your children the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Meaning of what Jesus has done for us. Just as we might go to a monument or memorial and explain that to our children, the Lord's Supper is to uh, be explained. It's an opportunity to teach our children about the mighty saving acts of the Lord when he died for us on the cross. The Lord knows, and the Old Testament bears this out, our own lives bear this out, that we're prone to forget we're prone to forget. In his book on Exodus, Phil Riken cites church historian Claire Davis as describing the Christian life as a combination of amnesia and deja vu. Or as Davis puts it, I know I've forgotten this before. Well, if the Lord tarries, I'm sure the day will come when most Americans will have a hard time remembering the significance of the date 9-11-01. Just as... Most Americans really couldn't tell you much about why we should remember the main. But as Christians, we dare not forget what God has done for us at the cross. And I don't mean just remember it as a fact, but remember it as something we personally have a stake in. We remember 9-11, but the people who had a loved one die in the Twin Towers collapse remember it in a far more personal and painful way than do you or I. Well, the same with the cross. We don't remember that as a historical fact. We remember that as something that we ourselves have a personal stake in. The pain, yes, that Jesus had to die for our sins, but also the joy that in so doing, he redeemed us. He freed us to be right with God, to belong to the Lord. We must remember the atonement Jesus made and reflect on it often. The Word of God, preaching it, reading it, teaching it, reminds us, of course, 
But the Lord gave us this feast, this meal, so that in, in graphic and in tangible detail, we would be forced to think back to the cross, to remember what the Lord did for us, to remember the blood of the Lamb that shields us from the judgment of God. For them it was the Passover. For us it's the Lord's Supper. It's a feast that says, remember the cross. When you're tempted to think more highly of yourself than you ought, remember the cross. When your conscience aches with guilt, remember the cross. When you wonder how you could be saved, remember the cross. When you eat the bread, remember the cross. When you drink the cup, remember the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your accommodating our weakness, our forgetfulness, in giving us this covenant meal to remind us regularly of your great saving acts. Father, may they not merely be a historical fact we remember in our minds, but a life-changing fact that has taken root deeply in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.